Welcome to the Cutting Edge Health Podcast with Jane Rogers, where we discuss science to help prevent cognitive decline. Welcome back to the Cutting Edge Health Preventing Cognitive Decline podcast. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the latest research to maintain our memories, from drinking pomegranate juice to using a hyperbaric chamber. This is all research that comes out of the UCLA Longevity Center at the Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior. Its director is Dr. Gary Small, and he's our guest. Dr. Small, thank you for joining us. Pleasure, Jane. Glad to be here. Thank you. So I'm reading the Memory Bible, the book that you wrote 20 years ago, but then you have a second edition that just came out. So you have learned so much as a researcher, as a scientist in the last 20 years. What have you learned about Alzheimer's and prevention? It's really the same story we had 20 years ago, but it's refined because we now have two decades of research supporting what we were saying back in the day that... Mm -hmm. For the average person, genetics, sure, that determines your brain health as you age, but non-genetic factors are even more important. So those little decisions we make each day, should I have a side of broccoli or should I get the French fries? Uh, should I take a brisk walk this morning or should I sit down and watch television? Those have an impact on how long and how well we live. There's no question about it. I agree. And I think a lot of us are changing our habits because of that. We're also watching our blood sugar a lot better. We're checking in on our heart health, our nocturnal oxygenation, all those kind of things to make sure, are we healthy to start with so we won't get this? It's not only those strategies you mentioned about taking care of your physical health, but I often talk about the big four that we've got to keep in mind. Exercise your body, exercise your mind, try to deal with stress as best you can. And let's see, what's the other one? Oh, yes. Your brain is what you eat. I mean, so uh, your decisions on what you ingest do have an impact on your brain health. There's no question. So I've read some of your research, too. Um, and what I found especially interesting this week, I tried something new. I tried a hyperbaric chamber. And I'd never done a hyperbaric chamber. But in the Memory Bible, you say that may have some efficacy. Why? Well, you know, ultimately, we, we don't know why these things work. In fact, I, I used to have a quote of Einstein's in my office. If we knew what we were doing, we wouldn't call it research, would we? So we have theories as to why it works. And hyperbaric oxygen, of course, the idea is get more oxygen in your brain. Your brain needs oxygen and nutrients to function well. The earlier studies on hyperbaric oxygen didn't pan out, but some more recent research suggests there may be a there there. We're not entirely sure why, mm -hmm. but you know, I'm an agnostic when it comes to research. I don't know. Let's do the studies and see where it takes us. And one of the studies you did too was on pomegranate juice. I saw yeah. in 2020, you published that. So tell us about pomegranate juice and how that might help us. Pomegranates have antioxidants and one thing we know is our brains age, they undergo what's called oxidative stress. So mm -hmm. this causes wear and tear on our brain cells, these pesky little so-called free radicals, these ionized elements in our bodies will destroy DNA, they'll destroy uh, the cell walls. And if by ingesting pomegranates, blueberries, any colorful fruit, that helps to counteract 
that oxidative stress. Mm -hmm. we, we found a positive result in that study. It wasn't overwhelming, but still it seemed to help to some degree. Mm -hmm. Are you drinking it every day? You know, I'm not, but I, you know what I do uh, use every day is I, I use curcumin. We did another study where we looked at curcumin, which is a spice. A 5% of turmeric mm -hmm. is curcumin, and people use this in their cooking and so forth. And we got interested in it because there had been studies showing that in India, there are lower rates of Alzheimer's disease in older adults. And in the laboratory, the chemical properties of curcumin ticked all the boxes that were important for keeping your brains healthy. I mentioned antioxidation, also it's mm -hmm. anti-inflammatory. It seems to also have an effect on dampening down the abnormal proteins that collect in the brain in Alzheimer's, amyloid plaques and tau tangles. So we raised some money from a couple of foundations and found a company in Asia that produced a form of curcumin that was bioavailable, actually got into your body, did the study and had a very positive effect. Now, the downside of the study was that we had a relatively small sample size. So what we're doing, we've negotiated with the company in Asia and we're replicating the study back at UCLA and also where I am in New Jersey. So in the meantime, I'm convinced that there may be a there there. So I'm uh, taking curcumin every day. But you mentioned that that certain brand had more bioavailability. That's right. Because there are other brands that I know about. It's possible, but I don't know. That's the one I studied. If your viewers are interested, uh, they mm -hmm. can do a brain exercise, go online and search these keywords, UCLA memory curcumin. And that will bring you okay. to the press release that uh, UCLA put out. And it also links to the actual study. And it gives you the brand name. It's called Thera Kerman. Oh, that's what I'm taking. Oh, you are? Okay, very good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm taking a lot of it every day. How much are you taking? You know, I should probably take what we recommended, but uh, I only take one a day. You know, uh, it contains 90 milligrams a day just for convenience. Mm -hmm. In the replication study, we're going to give it to people, uh, actually, a more bioavailable form. They've upgraded the uh, ingredient, and we'll give it once mm -hmm. a day. I think it's it's hard for people, especially if your memory is slipping, to take things twice a day. You forget. It is. And it becomes expensive too. You know, the more yeah. pills you're taking, there's a cost. To yeah, it. There is a cost, but I think that, you know, one of the most precious assets we have is our memory and people will yes. pay a lot to mm -hmm. keep their memories intact. So what are you doing now in the lab? What What's exciting you and your team members? So, you know, right now I I am not doing as much as I'd like to do in the lab because I've taken on a big challenge. Actually, I've followed some of my advice, and that is to uh, try to challenge your brain. I was at UCLA mm -hmm. for many decades, built a, a large program there, and a headhunter drew me out to New Jersey to run psychiatry for the largest health system in New Jersey. So I'm busy dealing with that. And uh, in the meantime, I'm setting up studies. We have, in addition to the curcumin study, we've just set up a study where we're looking at a device that people wear, and it provides electrical impulses to the brain. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna be studying people with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease to see if it has an effect. But there's a lot of other things going on that I think are promising. Offline, we were talking about cannabis. Uh, when I was back mm -hmm. at UCLA, we had established a cannabis 
research initiative that was looking at all mm -hmm. different approaches to how cannabis might help brain health. And I got interested in it because many of my older patients were using cannabis recreationally, and I could not advise them because there was such little research. But I think there might be something interesting in cannabis. Uh, there's some studies showing that certain ingredients may actually have a brain protective effect. Again, getting at those mechanisms that I think are important, the anti-inflammatory, antioxidant mechanisms. My concern about the research in Alzheimer's is it's been hyper-focused on one mechanism. If you look at brain scans of an Alzheimer patient, or if you look at a brain autopsy, you see the brain is riddled with this abnormal protein deposit amyloid. And that's where most of the research has focused. And you might have followed some of the research and there's been a lot of hiccups along the way that you can clear the amyloid out of the brain, but it may not affect the disease. So I, you know, I think that you know, another theory is that the amyloid that's accumulating may be a byproduct of some other mechanism. And this gets us back to inflammation, which I think is a very important mechanism. You know, I mentioned the curcumin and it had several properties, but you know, I, my hunch is it's the anti-inflammatory property. Before we did the mm -hmm. uh, curcumin study, uh, we did an NIH-supported study where we looked at an anti-inflammatory drug. It was actually uh, Celebrex, which is one of these non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And we gave it to people who had not Alzheimer's disease, but mild memory loss associated with aging. Can't find your keys, can't remember someone's name. And we found that it had a significant effect. Now, the problem with it was that other studies have found if you give an anti-inflammatory drug to people who already have dementia, more severe mm -hmm. cognitive decline, it actually could worsen things. So a big issue in this area is timing. You want to find that sweet spot where you're going to dampen inflammation so that it doesn't contribute to brain deterioration. But we don't have a biomarker to tell us when that is. And also the problem with using anti-inflammatory drugs is that they have lots of side effects. And unless we have compelling evidence that this is the way to go, we don't want to put a lot of people on those drugs unless they need them for you know, joint pain or other issues. I've started taking for inflammation, which my markers are a little bit higher than I want. I've started taking molecular hydrogen. I don't know about that. Tell me what's the evidence behind that. Well, there's research that shows that, and I'm not a scientist, I'm just a layperson, but it acts as an antioxidant. So if you're flying, for example, and you get exposed to the radiation, pilots and things like that, um, it's one of the ways to help detox from the oxidative um, properties of the radiation. And it lowers inflammatory load in your body. I haven't retested. I just started doing it, but I just wondered if you'd heard of it. I haven't heard of it. You know, and the it's, it's very challenging, this whole space, because uh, even for scientists, it's hard to sort through all the research. Mm -hmm. You know, you hear testimonials and stuff looks good on paper or in the ads, but uh, there may not be proof. You know, I think we also get hung up with some of the biomarkers, with the brain scan results or the blood tests. You know, at the end of the day, the good news is your brain looks better. The bad news is you're going to forget this conversation. So I think we've got to be cautious. And when I look at the the studies, you know, let's go, let's just take the curcumin study mm -hmm. uh, to begin with, or how we got, how I got down the path of inflammation. It was back in the 1990s when there was a an epidemiological study. It was a big study called the Baltimore Longitudinal Study, mm 
And what they mean by epidemiological studies is that they take a whole bunch of people out in the community and often representative samples, and they figure out by pencil and paper tests who has dementia or cognitive impairment and who doesn't. And then they look at their histories or they follow them over time and they find out, well, what kind of medicines did you take? And did you exercise? And did you watch television? Or did you read? Or did you go to college? And so that show that can demonstrate an association. Mm-hmm. So in that study, the Bontemont longitudinal study, they found that people who took anti-inflammatory drugs for two or more years had a lower risk for getting Alzheimer's disease. That's good. Mm -hmm. So that sounds pretty good. And that kind of got me in that area and then looked at the biology of it. Now, what happened with the science there? Okay, so that's an association. But there may be something associated with taking anti-inflammatory drugs. Maybe you're more educated and you're more likely to get to a doctor and take it for something else. It may be a spurious association. So to actually prove the cause and effect, you've got to do what we call a double-blind placebo-controlled study in humans. So what that means is that uh, you take a bunch of people, and in this case, it would be people who have the disease or are at risk for the disease. You put them on the ingredient, Mm -hmm. half of them get the ingredient, half of them get a placebo. Because placebo works, but it's only temporary. In fact, if you and I took placebos this morning, we'd probably feel better right now. We would. We'd be remembering things better. <laughs> That's right. So you've got to sort that piece out. And they don't tell, it's double blinded because they don't tell the investigators or the research subjects who's taking what mm-hmm. until the study is done. That's the way to sort it out to prove that something really works. But another complication is, and, and this was a, an error, I think, that was made after that epidemiological study. The next study the scientists did was to take anti-inflammatory drugs and give them to people who already had dementia, who were more advanced, and it didn't work. So again, it was the timing. Mm-hmm. And that it didn't make sense to me because really that longitudinal epidemiological study, they were looking at people who were at risk for more severe disease, not people who already have the mm-hmm. disease. Mm-hmm. You know, you've been in this business during, I think, a frustrating time, haven't you, where everything was focused on amyloid for so long. And now we're finally starting to see things changing with lifestyle factors, yeah, anti-inflammatories, instead of just one drug to beat this thing. Yeah, it's been, it's been up and down, I'll tell you. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I did a book oh, over a decade ago uh, called The Alzheimer's Prevention Program just after there was a panel that said you can't prevent Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> so, so, and then a year later, people say, well, maybe you can in the sense, you know, if you, if you say prevention equals cure, you know, I don't think anybody would buy into that. But if you think of prevention as delaying disease onset, yes. I think people have come around to the fact that the, the evidence is, is very compelling. And I, you know, this is very personal for so many people because so many of us have r- close relatives who have suffered. And so every time you misplace your keys, you think, oh my God, it's happening to me. And so many of us are quite motivated to do the right thing to take care of ourselves. Which is why I'm sitting here. Both my parents have Alzheimer's. <laughs> yeah, and well, I started to show early signs too. So I just, I'm motivated to, to learn. Yeah. Are you showing early signs or are you just experiencing normal age? No, I was showing early signs at the same age as my dad, 54, um, seven years ago. I It was noticeable to my family and those wow. around me. I was not doing well. And, and did you have some impact on changing your lifestyle? Totally, totally changed. 
So what do you think? What do you think worked for you? Oh, many things. Um, I had a high level of toxins in my body that I wasn't excreting. I had too many. I had too much glyphosate. Um, my inflammatory markers were really high. I wasn't taking bioidentical hormones to keep my hormone levels up, which is also neuroprotective to some extent. I wasn't doing brain games like we're going to talk about in a minute, things to improve your memory. Um, I wasn't sleeping well. So all those things. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, good mm-hmm. for you. That, yes. Yeah. Well, so there are a lot of things that you actually yeah. uh, took yeah. care of, and it, it's making you feel better. That's fantastic. Now, what you say in your book is that we really, I started really focusing heavily on this at 54, but you're saying, no, 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 no. You can tell when someone's 25 if they're struggling and, and might possibly be heading toward a... Well, mm-hmm. yeah, there's some evidence for that. Yeah. You, to some extent. I mean, there are studies showing that you can, I mean, actually the... Uh, the famous study about this was yes. the uh, nun study that was done a number of years ago, where they looked at diaries of nuns who uh, mm-hmm. were in their 20s, and uh, they followed them up 50 years later, and they found that the complexity of language and the vocabulary mm-hmm. in those diaries predicted who would have a problem 50 years later. So there, are, there can be subtle evidence very early on, but most of us don't have diaries from that long ago, and it's it's hard to use that as a predictive tool. Uh, the the other problem with some of the predictive tools, and I've been doing, you know, I've done a lot of research on brain scanning and and trying to predict what's going to happen from looking inside people's brains, is that uh, you know you may see something, but what can you do about it? I mean, is it going to make a difference? If you show an abnormality on a brain scan, maybe 10, 20 years before someone becomes symptomatic. Now, it's possible it could motivate that person to live a healthy lifestyle, as as you've done. But there's other studies showing that you tell people they've got Alzheimer's in their brain and they get anxious and depressed. And that's not good. So it can, you know, it can go either way. My, My own feeling, unless you have a test that really guides you. On what to do medically may not be a good idea to take that test, and it's not just in in brain health. You see it mm-hmm. in lots of things, mm-hmm. back pain. You know, if you give someone an MRI of their uh, of their lumbar spine, chances mm-hmm. are there's going to be abnormalities, and half those people won't even have symptoms. So, uh, you know, I think it's a, a tricky area. Would you recommend testing genetic testing to see if you carry the Alzheimer's gene? Only in in certain situations. The average person probably has some genetic risk, but it's not great enough to actually use it as a predictive test. So about less than a percent of cases, there are families that have what we call an autosomal dominant inheritance pattern, which means that half of family members get the disease and you inherit that. All you need is one copy of the disease to give you that risk. Usually it's early in life. You know, you probably heard of the families in Colombia South America, and they've been doing these studies to look at them. If you get that test, you have the disease. But that doesn't really fit for most people. Most people will tell you, well, you know, I had a a grandparent who had it, and she got it in her 80s, or I had a cousin who got it uh, in their late 70s. Now, if you look at prior probabilities and the risk for dementia, by age 85, some studies show up to 40, 50% of people are at risk. 
So if I give you, let's say I give you a, a genetic test, and the, the one that we've studied the most is APOE, and it's positive, you have APOE4. Well, yeah, that does increase your risk that you're going to get the disease, but it depends on how long you live and it depends on what your lifestyle is. We've done studies of people who carry the APOE4 genetic risk, and if they exercise more, they live a healthier lifestyle, they have less Alzheimer's in their brains. Which is what I'm hoping. Mm-hmm. And there have been studies as well as the brain scans looking, informing people of their genetic test results, mm-hmm. and it can have a negative effect, not just on mood, but even on their memory. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy when they find out they have this. Especially if they don't know what to do to really yes. work with it. Yeah. yeah. We need more education. So I mentioned the future. So you you updated your book now, looking back at the 20 years and what you've learned. But tell me what you think is coming. Do you think you're going to live long enough to see a, not a cure, but I mean, less less people getting this as we age? Well, I think to some extent that may be happening. You know, there have been some large studies uh, looking at these lifestyle uh, strategies. And um, it really seems to work. There's a, a, you know, there's a big study that's been done in, in Northern Europe. And uh, it was kind of an expensive intervention where they had people uh, meet with nutritionists, they had them exercise and do all kinds of things. And they developed dementia or cognitive decline at a lower rate. Uh, and even looking at the predictions from 10, 20 years ago of what the rates of dementia would be, they seem to be getting lower in developed nations where people are more educated and, and they're living healthier lifestyles. So I think that is good. But the problem is, and uh, you know, I suppose this is why I became a psychiatrist, is how do you help people to change? It's, it's one thing to say, eat right and exercise. But, uh, you know, I get, well, that's fine and dandy, doctor, but do you have a pill? So I think the question is how do you how do you motivate people to live healthier? And I think you know that's one reason that my wife and I have written all these books about it. Uh, one reason I've developed programs on it is that there are things you can do to convince people, and and you know we're sort of doing that right now. The first is to educate people. You know, so if you know that if you take a twenty minute brisk walk this morning instead of just sitting around and doing nothing you know, that's going to help your brain. And so you're going to be more motivated to do that. The other thing is you have to develop programs that are not overwhelming and that are fun and engaging. So, you know, you do a little bit each day, you get used to it and you get better. It, it, it reinforces itself. And the other thing, you have to build in feedback. So, you know, if you go on a diet and you lose a couple pounds in a week, you're going to be motivated to keep doing that. And so in the memory Bible, for example, we have little tests that we give people to show them how they're improving if they start using the methods. That's the psychiatrist coming in. There right? you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the memory. I want, I don't want to call them tricks, but the things that you use because your memory strong, you're a memory expert and you think it's important that we exercise our memories all the time. Yeah. Well, I think there's, you know, really two aspects to exercising your mind. I mean, one is stimulating yourself, is to uh, have conversations with friends, to read books, to play games, to do puzzles and so forth. And there's some evidence that that kind of active mental activity will exercise your neural circuits or keep them strong and possibly stave off disease. 
But the other is a more specific kind of mental exercise. It teaches techniques or tricks, if you want to call it, that will help people to compensate for their fading memories. Uh, In fact, these techniques have been around for a long time. I remember when I was in medical school, there was uh, somebody promoting a memory book, and I was about to take gross anatomy, which is a very difficult topic. So I read the book and I did very well in gross anatomy. But the trouble with the book, it was not fun. You know, it was really complicated and I didn't like that. So fortunately, I teamed up with my wife, who's a great writer, and we were able to simplify some of these methods. So in the memory Bible, we introduced look, snap, connect as the the three basic methods that uh, all these techniques build on. So look as a reminder to focus your attention. The biggest reason we don't remember is we're simply distracted, not paying attention. Snap is a reminder to take a mental snapshot of what you want to recall later. That leverages your brain's natural ability to recall things visually. And connect is a way of linking up those mental snapshots so they have meaning. If you can make something meaningful, it will become memorable. So if you meet a guy and his name is Harry and he happens to have a lot of hair, already you're going to remember his name. <laughs> and you can do that for names and faces, which is the biggest complaint people have. Or, you know, one, another uh, big one is um, what we call the tip of the tongue phenomenon, where there's a, a, a movie or a book that's on the tip of your tongue, but you just can't, can't come up with it. Get it. Yeah. Doesn't roll off. And then, you know, you're driving along and then it comes to you. And You know, I think that's because our memories sort of live in neighborhoods and you have certain associations that help you with the memory. I'll give you an example how Look, Snap, Connect can help you with the tip of the tongue. I was uh, actually my wife and I were watching a movie many years ago uh, and it it starred Jeremy Irons uh, playing two psychotic twin obstetricians in Canada. And it was a real creepy movie. And uh, it was very, and what was compelling about it was uh, Jeremy Irons' performance playing both of these twins. But whenever we, you know, we'd see something about Jeremy Irons, we thought, oh, remember that movie he was in? What was that called? Was it, he played a twin, he played twins. Was it Twin Peaks? No, no, that was a TV series. For the life of us, we couldn't remember it. So what we did was we used Look, Snap, Connect. So whenever I want to remember the name of that movie, I visualize Jeremy Irons playing dead with rings on his fingers. And the name of the movie is Dead Ringers. Oh, oh, that's good. That's good. So what it does, so it uses, you know, what, you know, what it was compelling. It's kind of an emotional memory. You know, the, the, the theatrical performance kind of riveted in my brain, but it didn't quite link up exactly with the title of the movie. So what I recommend to people, if they have that tip of the tongue experience, you can't remember the name of that book that you love, you want to tell somebody about it. You know, when things calm down, look it up. Fortunately, we have these external memory devices, you know, our smartphones, look it up and then use Look, Snap, Connect to come up with a a visual mnemonic that'll fix it in your brain. Do you think our memories are are struggling because of all those devices? We rely on them so much. Oh, yeah. Again, we're not paying attention. That's, Mm -hmm. that's half the battle. And we're distracted by these devices, but we can use them. We all, we use them all the time for our memories. You know, how many times are you at dinner and somebody can't remember something? You look it up, Yep. (laughs) you know? So, and that's, and our brains do that naturally. Our brains are economical. You know, if you don't remember 
where that restaurant is in town and your spouse does, you don't have to look it up. You just say, hey, Gigi, where's that restaurant again? <laughs> so, and so we do, you know, even before we had the smartphones, we would do that mm-hmm. because, you know, to remember everything is exhausting. It is. And, and we tend to remember things that are meaningful. Now, you as a podcaster, I mean, I'm saying a lot of things right now and probably half the stuff I'm saying is just kind of going out into sensory memory, which means you're not really going to pay attention to it. But there are some things that work into your mental template that makes it important that you'll ask a follow-up question on because it has meaning to you. So one of the follow-up questions is you're taking curcumin. But what else are you doing? Because you've been in this field a long time. You probably have a whole regimen you do that I would love to learn about. So, you know, it's not that complicated. I mean, basically, I like to practice what I preach. And if if your head's Mm-hmm. In this space, it's it's very difficult for it not to affect you. And I, I would say I'm proud that I'm healthier now than I was 20 years ago. Isn't it amazing? Because yeah. I try to integrate, you know, and, and the stuff we write about, you know, whether it's Pilates or, uh, uh, you know, meditation, you know, you got to get into it. You got to understand it and try it yourself. So what, what I do is not that miraculous. I mean, I already talked about the curcumin. Mm-hmm. Physical exercise is really important. So I, I get in aerobic and strength training. I think you got to do both. The mm-hmm. studies show that it's, it's positive and also gives you, you know, more confidence, I think, at any age. Then there's an the ugly stress that rears its head every day, which is impossible to erase, but it can be managed. You know, I might do some meditation or talk about what's bothering me with a friend or mm-hmm. with my wife and not let it get to me. And, and I can use that also. And, and sleep is so important. You know, I might, when you get older, you tend to have a lighter sleep. I try to use good sleep hygiene, go to bed at the same time. But, you know, if I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm not going to fret about that. Uh, I'm going to just, a, a trick I learned many years ago, I used to read when, um, you know, mm-hmm. I couldn't sleep at night. And then I'd get sleepy and I'd turn off the light and get back in the bed and I'd be awake again because all that physical movement was stimulating. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. one thing I'll do is I would use a Kindle backlit mm-hmm. so you can just read it in the dark, and drop it off. Mm-hmm. But even better is audible books and you can put it on to a really boring book. <laughs> well, or, you know, it has to be the right yeah. book. Yeah. Cause I started, <laughs> I started with another book and it was just too stimulating and, uh, it didn't do the trick, but it's just kind of, you just drift off and it's, you know, it's an old technique. If you think about it, you know, your kids, you read them a good night story mm-hmm. or you count sheep. It's a way to get your mind off of worrying about sleeping. Another part of that, that I found that can be helpful to, it's kind of a form of meditation is just to get yourself in a very comfortable position and don't move. Mm-hmm. Or even you can do a guided meditation where you notice different parts of your body systematically and just try to relax mm-hmm. it. So all these techniques are tremendously helpful and, and empowering. And, you know, so it's like just a combination of things. A diet, very important. So I'll eat every meal. I try to have a healthy protein and healthy carb. Mm-hmm. Protein sustains your satiety so you don't snack on junk food and the carb gives you energy and uh, try not to overeat try to balance the diet get enough uh, omega-3 fats which reduce inflammation enough fruits and vegetables and just live an overall uh, healthy life Mm -hmm. you mentioned kids and i don't know how old your children are but 
Can you convince them at all that they should be working on brain health and making sure that they're doing all these things you mentioned? Or are they not interested? Dad, come on. We don't want to hear about it. Well, I'd say yes and no. I think that it's it's never, I always say it's never too early or too late to start taking Mm -hmm. care of your brain. And in fact, I would go to my kids' schools every year and do a little mini lecture, you know, for the kids. And, you know, it helped them uh, learn the capitals of the U.S. And my kids thought that you eat broccoli for your brain, you know, it's going to make your brain red because they saw the brain scans. Uh, So I think, (laughs) you know, part of that is that, you know, it's easier to learn a good habit than to break a bad one. And so to some extent you can do that, but you know, there's the invincibility of youth. Unless something's bothering you, you're not gonna bother with changing your habits. And there's a lot of peer pressure to do things differently. But you can't, you know, you can't have conversation. I think the best thing is to have adult conversations with them. One of the books we wrote was called iBrain, and it was about how technology can help or hinder your brain health. We did a lot of talks at schools. And so at some of the schools, the principal would have a contest. They'd say, let's see if you can go before Dr. Small comes and we have this lecture. Let's see if uh, you can go without technology for uh, 24 hours and we'll see what happens. And it was really interesting. I th- It really engaged them in the conversation to see the ups and downs of it. Mm-hmm. Before we close, is there anything else you'd like to talk about from your research or, or your hopes for the future? Well, this is what we call in psychiatry the doorknob comment, you know. <laughs> One hand on the doorknob. The patient is just about to leave. And oh, by the way, I'm going to kill myself, you know. (laughs) Oops. So is there anything? You know, I think that it's, I would just say that, you know, you got to find something that works for you, you know, that fits in with your lifestyle. It's not that difficult. You know, you say, well, I haven't got time to go to the gym. You don't need to go to the Mm -hmm. gym. Park your car a little bit further from work. Take a brisk walk. Decide to take a few stairs today instead of taking the elevator. And pace yourself. Don't do it overnight. Uh, try to build up gradually. It's just like a physical exercise program. If you go too fast, you're going to injure yourself. So find that sweet spot where it's fun and it's engaging and do it every day. Great advice. Dr. Small, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Jane. I really appreciate it. You have a great day, okay? Thank you. You too. You've been listening to the Cutting Edge Health Podcast, created and hosted by Jane Rogers. The website is cuttingedgehealth.com. We hope you enjoyed the show and would very much appreciate your writing a review. They help a lot and we read each one. Any information shared on this podcast is for educational purposes only. Guest opinions are their own. This podcast is not responsible for the veracity of their statements. The comments expressed are not medical advice. Do not use any of this information without first talking to your doctor. This podcast and Jane Rogers disclaim responsibility for any adverse effects from the use of any information presented. Thank you for listening and have a beautiful day.